0: Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Mr. Eric Julius. Mr. Ulius is an AP psychology teacher at Wyo Junior Senior High School in Pennsylvania. He has been teaching psychology for 20 years and is an AP reader for the college board for nine years. Teaching psychology has been such a big part of his life. But besides that, he's also a track and field coach for his high school. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Julius and I'm excited you're here to speak for us.
1: My, my pleasure, Brandon.
0: Um, Since you're super knowledgeable in psychology, can you talk to me about um, the connection between psychology and neuroscience?
1: Um, well, right now, I would say that that neuroscience field is an exploding field in psychology, probably within the last 10 years. Um, everything about brain scans and brain imaging seems to be in vogue right now. It seems to be the in thing. So a lot of psychology is really emphasizing neuroscience. We all like to see a good brain scan, how our brain is active. And then when you pair that with, uh, you know, Um, you know, sports and other practical applications, I think it gets a lot of attention.
0: Can you explain what neuroscience specifically is?
1: I would say just neuroscience is using the the brain. And now within the last, you know, 20, 30 years, we have all these different um, brain imaging techniques that have exploded, allow us to Capture what's doing in the brain. I mean, once, upon, I mean, the brain's hard to access. I mean, it's it's in hard skull, you can't see it. So, uh, unless there were some brain injuries, it was really hard to study the brain. So, with the advances with MRIs and fMRIs, um, we'd be able to do a lot more um, research without causing any permanent damage to our human subjects. So yeah, it's really using the brain and the brain chemicals and what parts of the brain are active when we think about certain topics or when we do certain actions.
0: So how is neuroscience and the brain connect to sports and affect our everyday life? <laughs>
1: Oh boy, well, everything is psychological at the same time biological, right? Um, The reason why you want to pick up a a phone to check your text message is because of the release of dopamine, okay? Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's linked with pleasure. Um, So everything we do say all relates to the brain and the exchange of these chemicals. and obviously with sports, that plays a huge, huge, huge role. I mean, there's research that shows that when you win a contest, you get this burst of testosterone, this burst of dopamine. Um, and when we lose, we have a, a detraction of those chemicals. And it's interesting, even for sports fans, seeing their team lose causes a diminishment of the testosterone and, and those dopamine chemicals. So really, it's, it's, uh, it's all about the brain. <laughs>
0: perfect and in psychology there is the Yerkes-Dodson law. Can you touch on that and how that uh, law applies to sports?
1: Absolutely. Uh, that relates to um, how much arousal is necessary to be successful in task. Um, so it's really like a upside down U-shaped curve where there is a the peak of that curve is where you want to be for a task. And it differs on the type of tasks. Um, more difficult tasks, you are going to want um, a lower level arousal. and easier task, you want a more higher level arousal. Let me give you an example. So let's suppose you're a 100 meter sprinter. Uh, That's a relatively cognitive easy task. You don't really need to think a whole much about, you know, sprinting really fast. So you want to make sure your arousal levels are up, meaning your heart rate, your breathing. This is why you do wind sprints and you do all these bounding drills to get your heart rate up so when the gun goes off boom, you go, because if your arousal levels are too, too low, you're not, going to, you're not going to compete at a high a level be happy with the result. Um, by way of contrast, let's take a basketball player. You know, a basketball player gets fouled, okay, goes to the free throw line. What's immediately what you do when you go to the free throw line? You take a deep breath, you dribble the ball, you relax because shooting a free throw is actually uh, sniffly more challenging than like hitting a layup. So you want to make sure you get your arousal level down. So the you know, Yorks thoughts and is extremely important for sports to you know where is that you know level of arousal. You want to be pumped up enough, but you don't want like adrenaline shooting out of your ears that you're going to make mistakes. You know another example would be like on the football field um, because when we're super aroused and we're super pumped up. You're going to make fouls, you're going to go offside, you're going to commit silly penalties. So it's like a balance, and I really think the yerkes Dotson Law is very important in sports, trying to find where is that level of balance in your arousal levels.
0: That's a great example. Can you touch on what arousal really means, though?
1: Yeah, I should clarify, arousal is not necessarily sexual, okay, arousal just simply means your body's activation, uh, your heart rate, uh, your breathing, your blood pressure, your, how much you're sweating, um, basically your body's level of energy levels. You want that really, really, really high in uh, low, uh, low cognitive kind of areas and you want that kind of um, diminished in areas that require more concentration.
0: Got it. And you also, um, why do we need to use our frontal lobes less during some sports and let the cerebellum do its thing, as you said?
1: Okay, well, the frontal lobes is what is responsible for executive functions. It makes us most human. It's planning, judgment, those sort of things. And one would think we want more of that, the better to minimize mistakes. The cerebellum, by way of contrast, is in the back of our head and it's responsible for just like automatic motor functions. Happens almost automatically without conscious awareness. Um, So that cerebellum is where automatic skill memory happens. Okay. And, Really, what you want to do is to be very, very efficient. Um, you want to have less activity in your motor cortex or your frontal lobes, and you want that to move back to the cerebellum to be more automatic processing. Um, I can give you an example here. and this. Uh, comes from A.K.U. Salo. He's an associate professor for uh, sports biomechanics at the University of Bath. Um, Salo was working with a number of British athletes um, and was working with Ashley Nelson. She's a sprinter and she's one of Great Britain's premier 100-meter runners. And he said to her, look, if Ashley starts to think about what she's doing in her 100-meter dash or she starts thinking about where her fellow athletes are in the relay race, her neural system will break down, and her technique breaks down, and she's not as effective. So, really, in a well-learned task, you want to rely on your cerebellum more. Um, Automatic processing um, is oftentimes superior in, especially in like a 100-meter event, where... Otherwise, if you start using your frontal lobe, you start almost questioning yourself, you know, did I get out fast enough? Uh, what am I doing? And oftentimes those negative thoughts can kind of intrude. So uh, sometimes when an athlete has a bad performance, I'll just say, hey, look, uh, you use your frontal lobe too much, it got in the way of your performance. So really, I think for many athletes, um, particularly like the 100 meter dash, um, when you're very well trained, let your training do the walk talking and let your training walk you through there. Trust your training and let that guide to that because, you know, research even shows that when you're using your cerebellum, you're actually consuming less energy and you're being more efficient than you are when you're using your more cognitive frontal lobes. So hopefully that's a good answer for the uh, clarification between the frontal lobes and the cerebellum with regards to sports activities.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great. And doesn't the cerebellum have something to do with uh, the zone or otherwise known as the state of flow?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned flow. That was from uh, Mikhail Cheek Set Me High, a researcher who looked at the idea of flow which is that sweet spot you wanna be. When we're completely immersed in an activity we love we're doing, not necessarily sports, but it could be art, it could be painting, it could be literature, it could be even teaching, um, where we just lose track of our conscious self, or we just lose track of time. Sometimes in the flow that people say that things slow down and our thought processes shift away from those cognitive frontal lobes and more to your Unconscious, And I suppose your cerebellum would be more active in those things. So absolutely the cerebellum would be more active in your flow state because sometimes you might not even realize how long you've been doing a task or how long you've been doing a performance because you're relying more on your automatic unconscious processes that's associated with your uh, cerebellum.
0: Got it. So you know all these functions and these parts of their brain and what they do. So do you think memorizing these functions and what the cerebellum does, for example, is important for athletes?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would, you know, say to them in a big contest, you know, trust your training. It almost sounds cliche, but let the cerebellum, which is responsible for skill memory, do its thing. You know, you've been trained to do this, let the cerebellum do its thing. And don't let that frontal lobe that is doubting sometimes and trying to th- come up with a logical reasons for failure uh, to get in the way. So absolutely. Then um, there are certain times when you want to use your your, your frontal lobes in your in your sports, we'll talk about them. Those things as well uh, but for for a lot of times you can overthink things and that's why the I think it's helpful to say you know let your cerebellum do its thing and you know don't let your frontal lobes get in the way <laughs> how, does
0: how does an athlete actually, an athlete actually tell its brain to like let the cerebellum do its thing like it's not just a switch
1: again I, I, I if you can just tell that athlete again my cliche trust your training you know I mean you've done this before and I'll Hopefully, some of these other uh, some of these other questions you'll talk about some of these visualization strategies may help it, you know elicit that. Um, but I would just you know tell an athlete, hey, look, you've done this before, you know, you've trained this, you have practiced this, um, and just do let your body do its thing, let its cerebellum do its thing.
0: I see. And yeah, we'll talk about visualization right now. So you sent me that uh, information on how the Navy SEALs use brain brace strategies to help with training. Uh, can you talk about that and what they do?
1: Okay. Um, let me talk about, you know, how about if I talk about visual, you want me to talk about the uh, the SEALs first or should I just go over visualization in general? Do you have a preference? Do I start with the SEALs first or you want me to go with sports?
0: Um, You can do visualization first and then Navy SEALs second.
1: Okay, we'll do that then. Cool. Um, I would say, you know, there are you know, visualizations, I, I remember like, you know, sometimes coaches say, imagine yourself, you know, you know, you know, I've done some sports in high school. I did wrestling, you know, I did baseball, a little bit of running. Um, but the coach saying imagine yourself in this position where you're, you know, taking them down, a the two-legged takedown and imagine yourself going in there and taking that shot. And I thought it was kind of corny. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, imagine myself, how about I just do it? But no, I mean, there's a, a A lot of research shows that the value of visualization, which will be like one of the things that the Navy SEALs can do, Um, you know, and and the research, this actually goes back to the 1970s. I think the Soviets were amongst the first to really use visualization strategies uh, for their athletes, and it's got a whole bunch of different advocates since then. Tiger Woods has been using uh, visualization strategies ever since his preteen years. Um, world champion golfer Jack Nicholas has once said, quote, I never hit a shot, not even my practice without having a very sharp and focused picture in my head and quote, um, even heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, the late great, even used visualizations in the, when he was thinking about in the ring. Um, it's really, 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 really helpful to do this um, because it kind of activates the same areas in the brain when you actually involve the task. So if you think about running, uh, it activates your motor cortex, um, which you use to move your legs. So then, when you're actually in that situation, you, your brain has a sense of familiarity. Um, our cross-country coach, uh, you know, Tim Hetrick. Uh, the day before, the, the night before, we were ready to run our first cross country championship uh, with our girls from Wyoming. Uh, this was back in 1999 at Hershey Stadium, and yeah, home of Hershey Chocolate, That's where the cross country championships were. We were right on top of the hill, overlooking the entire um, cross country course, and he brought our girls team up there and he said, "Now imagine, there you are, going through the first mile, going through the mile and a half." Going through this two mile, there you are going up the hill, and you guys are going for that state championship. And it was awesome. And we uh, had background music playing Eye of the Tiger um, kind of jazz us up. And we're just and the girls, just imagine themselves going through that. And they 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 crushed it, they, they crushed one of the, the first of our four state uh, medalists that year. And um, they said they that they had much, much less jitters going through that race because they kind of raced it through their head and it made some of the apprehension and uh, go away. So visualization can have a really, really powerful effect. Um, One last piece of research I found to show the the value of visualization. Uh, This sounds a little bit crazy. Um, In some cases the research I found that like mental practice is almost not quite as effective as true physical practice. Uh, For example, there is this study on everyday people, um, an exercise physiologist from, it was from the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, Ohio, compared results of those who did physical exercises as opposed to those who did virtual workouts in their heads. Uh, They were doing like finger strength exercises and those who actually did the finger stretch exercises increased their strength by about 53%, okay? However, the group that just did mental, they picture themselves doing these finger exercises, had an increase of 35%. So that's pretty good. I mean, 53 to 35%. Um, So there was a significant gains of this finger stretch, just visualize yourself doing that. So yeah, Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. With regards to your, um, with your Navy SEALs there, The Navy SEALs have used training because they realize that obviously there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cognitive forces at work with fear. Uh, They wanted to get their recruits to pass the pool comp, which is one of the more difficult parts of the whole Navy SEALS program. All of it looks really difficult, Um, so the four aspects what the Navy SEALS try to teach their um, recruits to better pass the fear of this pool test um, is fourfold. One is goal setting, uh, where you, you set your goals and you break down your goals into little parts. Like, for example, you would say, Okay, you have a 10 mile run today. It sucks. But break it down. Okay, look, I'm going to get through the first mile. All right. When I'm getting through the first mile. I'm going to realize, Hey, I'm into this. And now I'm going to look forward to my second mile. So breaking down a large goal in small parts is pretty helpful. Positive self talk. Uh, oftentimes, we get negative in self and just teach yourself that as uh, we say to our athletes, have that positive conversation with yourself so when you're going through that one mile mark you feel okay i got this i got this i'm, I'm where i want to be you know my 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 pace is good um i'm not out too fast i like where i'm at this is good the third thing was the visualization which i spoke of where uh, visualize yourself going through the task because i said before it activates the same areas of the brain when you actually do the task and finally, arousal control. Uh, I mentioned arousal control is simply uh, controlling how your body's heart rate is and minimizing that. Sometimes just breathing techniques can help minimize that because um, we become agitated as our heart races and fear ensues. So controlling the physiological you know, predictors of those things, such as your heart rate and breathing, can also help. So that is the um, the Navy SEALs and with their... Uh, take is on um you know brain and passing the
0: the pool comp that's great thank you for all that information and i'll link that video below because i think it's super helpful as well and um what do you think is one common myth about our brains in relation to sports
1: huh, that's 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 a good question there um well there's a, there's a lot of them out there um obviously we're getting a lot better with like concussions. Um, You know, when I was in high school, you got your headache, oh, you just got like a little, you just got a little ringer, get back in there. Obviously, you know, when it, there's a lot more uh, research and there's a lot more um, awareness of the damage of of concussions. So I think, you know, those things are being, you know, set aside. So I think that a lot of those myths uh, related to concussions have kind of been been set aside. Trying to think of what would be, what would be uh, an, another great brain myth for sports? I'm not really coming up with all from the top of my mind. Um, I'll talk about some current trends, though, which oh, it's, I think I'll save for at the end. Great. You said, like, brain myths. I have a lot of g- brain myths, but not necessarily are sports-related. Oh, why
0: don't you just talk about just those just talk about brain, about myths, brain myths, then?
1: Okay. Oh, well, some of them are, like... Um, Uh, The most famous one, obviously, we only use 10% of our brain. Okay, that is the one that is probably the most quoted. I I cringe because sometimes I still see this like on TV shows or that things are tend to be like very pseudo-scientific. I cringe. We only use 10% of our brain. Just think how smart Einstein could be. Well, I'll tell you what. uh, Okay, grab a baseball or any kind of ball and throw it okay believe it or not you're utilizing about three quarters of your brain that very task okay so the idea that we only use 10 percent of our brain is a myth and it originates back to like the turn of the century when they would use primitive ways to study the brain which were electrical stimulation and probably only about 10 percent of the time you would see an obvious you know reaction a motor function or a sensory function and oftentimes you stimulate large parts of the brain nothing obvious happens but a lot of researchers erroneously concluded then, well, if we're not seeing anything happen, I guess we don't use that part of our brain. Um, so I guess that would be probably the, the greatest brain myth. And and if you put someone in a fMRI, you know, a functioning, uh, functioning MRI, which looks at, you know, how much uh, blood and oxygen are consumed when we do a task, usually about, you know, three quarters of your brain is involved with that because you have to first Use your occipital lobe to visualize what you're looking at. You have to use your uh, your temporal lobe and your vernicase area to understand the instructions of throw me the ball. Um, you'll have to use your motor cortex to move your arm. you have to use your cerebellum to help guide that process uh, and maintain your balance. Um, your parietal lobe judges, you know, distance and revolve in spatial relationships Your medulla is keeping your heart breathing so there's a lot going on there with just a simple task so that 10% myth is hopefully it's hard for that to die but it's still around unfortunately
0: so how much percent do you think we do on everyday tasks
1: or using our brain almost all the time <laughs> I would probably say we're using it almost all of it all the time uh, I would say probably you know 50 to 90 percent all the time
0: got it yeah, that was super interesting. Do you have any other general brain myths?
1: Okay, um, the idea that you are you know left-brained or right-brain, um, we use both our we use both our hemispheres. Okay, we use both the hemispheres. We have we have uh, one brain but in two hemispheres. And someone might say, well, I'm such a a left I'm such a left-brain logical person. Okay, now I mean, no, you just use your your left hemisphere but you need that right hemisphere to convey faces to look at faces and recognize faces you need that right hemisphere to maybe bring a little bit of holistic to it the bigger picture of what you're looking at um, so even artists that says well I'm, I'm such a right hemisphere person well you need your left hemisphere to speak uh, to talk to communicate so you know we're not just like one hemisphere I think that's also a myth
0: that's great. Thank you for that. And um, what are some brain training techniques to help people in sports?
1: Okay, uh, good question there. Um, well, one simple way, um, and this is from Tom Brady, okay? Um, one of the simplest way Brady says is just getting regular routines and sleep. Um, Sleep is one of the safest, cheapest ways to help maintain your your athlete's, you know, edge. Um, Brady reports going to bed at 9 p.m. and waking up at 6 a.m. And he says getting nine uninterrupted hours of sleep is, is cheap therapy and good regeneration for his body and his brain. So right there is one really good one. Um and i and tom brady is also a little bit of a mental athlete as well um he says that he also uses neuroscience to train his body into forming new habits and he calls this neural priming okay the fancy way of this is just saying look you want to get stronger faster connections in your brain and you need to practice the habit or skill again and again and again and again so you know, there's a reason why that your coach makes you suit all those free throws um there's a reason why that if you're a, a quarterback you're making all those throws through those holes through those targets okay um you when the more you practice that habit or skill behavior the way you automatically your brains will recognize it and that helps create that move to the cerebellum, okay, where it becomes more automatic. So the old uh, cliché is practice makes perfect. Um, I guess you can expand that for neurosciences, you know, practice makes the uh, memory go from your frontal lobes to your cerebellum. So I guess those two things, you know, I mean, you know, sleep and, um, and just practice. I mean, there's nothing new with those things, but sometimes we neglect those things, especially the sleep. Um, here is, you know, Tom Brady was arguably the greatest quarterback uh, ever, the football generation getting like nine hours sleep. It's like, come on in here, sissy. But it, he, you know, he recognizes the value of sleep, you know, uh, and why it's good for his body as well as his brain.
0: I see. And is that you? just, um, reminded me, is there any relation between like muscle memory and our real brain?
1: I would say a lot of people like to use muscle memory and will say that it's, it's in your muscles. Um, it's really not, it's really not. It's more like, uh, you know, cerebellum memory, but oftentimes we use that, you know, muscle memory, but it's really, really, really cerebellum memory um, because the muscles don't recall how to do a task. It's the cerebellum that, that does that. So it's sort of the same thing, but it's more like cerebellum memory than muscle memory.
0: I see, and I know in psychology you touch on like neuroplasticity, is there any Mm -hmm. connection with that in sports?
1: Absolutely, because every time that you are creating new connections or new pathways theoretically that is plasticity. So when you learn new tasks, when you learn new skills, um, that is plasticity in a way. So maybe if you, I don't know, you're a baseball hitter, and now you're going to take more practice switching to your left side as opposed to your right side. You're you're forming new connections in there, okay? That's plasticity. You know, the task of learning to become a switch hitter, it takes a great deal of plasticity to be able to hit from both sides of the plate. So absolutely, that's a nice connection, Brandon. You must have been a good psychology student or something to make that connection between the two.
0: (laughs) Got it. And um, do you have any general tips or a couple tips for uh, our younger student athletes from a neurological perspective?
1: Okay, um, you know I would say what Tom Brady says is so important: sleep. You know, and it's double important for adolescents who need you know nine hours of sleep at least. You know, we tend to neglect these things, especially with uh, you know, especially in COVID when we don't have the opportunities to we have all we don't have to get out and do things, and you know we have all these commitments you know on the computer, sometimes late at night, you know, we kind of neglect our sleep. and another sleeping pattern, regular sleeping patterns. That's something else that Tom Brady said. you know, just get into a regular sleeping pattern. you know, avoid the Sunday night insomnias. Um, practice practice practice, as I said, uh, like I said, sounds a cliche, but um, that is what uh, neural priming with Tom Brady calls. Um, so eat healthy. As well, because you know, the brain responds better to things with like omega 3 fatty acids, you know, uh, good fatty oils, you know, so that actually there is uh, nutrition involved as well. So, I guess nutrition, you know, sleep and and practice, practice, practice those are the things I would get, I would recommend to um, student athletes.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think a misconception that a lot of uh, younger people get is like you could sleep less during the school days and just catch up on the weekends. Can you talk about why that's yeah.
1: bad? Yeah, it's called, it's your sleep bet. Um It's not good because it, what it does is it really whacks out your circadian rhythms. You know, we really operate best when we go to bed at the right time because our brain is a finely tuned machine which has these circadian rhythms, which is our 24-hour body clock, that at 3 a.m., you know, the hypothalamus says time to order the endocrine system and a pituitary gland to release, you know, growth hormones. So, but if you're going to bed one night at 11 p.m. and next night at 2, at uh, I'm sorry, at 11 p.m. one night and going to bed again, I don't know it. 2 a.m., you're going to throw the whole cycle out of whack, and you know, you're awake when your hypothalamus wants to tell your body to release hormones, and it throws everything out of whack. So, that's one of the problems with the idea of, you know, you know staying up and then catching up on the sleep. I mean, I think it, it, it can, you know, it, you can sleep in a couple hours on the weekend, that would help, but just to say, hey man, I'm really going to sleep for, you know, 12 hours on the weekend and catch up on all that sleep that I missed, you're not really... You're, going to be uh, um super efficient by doing that
0: got it and are there any new developments in neuroscience or psychology that connect with sports
1: <laughs> yeah um obviously a lot more emphasis on the on on the brain um how it relates to sports and um i would you ever hear the wonderlick test um from from football
0: no can you talk about that
1: okay uh, this has been Go you know, go Google this thing and I'll, I'll bring this up because I always think this is fascinating. Um, I would say about 50 years, um, there was a, a psychological uh, assessment that was great for intelligence. It is a, a 50 multiple choice test and it looks at processing speed, judgment, things like that. Um, and really for, I think it was actually made in the 1930s, the Wunderlich test. And I would probably say for about 50 years or so, uh, the NFL has been using this test and uh, NFL like recruiters want their, uh, their prospects to take this test to see the intangibles of how bright they are, what kind of judgments they make, what kind of skills they make. And over the years, it's had some... Some, at, at some point, and obviously quarterbacks are the ones that most frequently take this test. And some people like to point because, you know, quarterbacks need to be bright. They need to be the field generals. They need these kind of skills. Um, it was actually used for, now. I remember, the Mudder test was actually used to test fighter pilots who needed to be able to do split decisions, quick thinking, and, you know, time constraints, much like a football player or a quarterback would. So I could see the parallels. So over the years, some people have really touted this Wunderlich test as being, you know, super effective. Um, Others have said, no way, this has not been super effective. Like Dan Marino, arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation, scored a 15 out of 50, a 15 out of 50, which is not very, very good. Um, um, The guy from Miami, what, Tua? I think he scored like a 19 out of 50, also not very good. But he's a rookie, so it remains to be seen how good he is. But he was pretty good for Alabama. Fitzpatrick, you know, the guy, has uh, been all around the NFL. Uh, I think he's currently with Miami right now. Um, I think he scored a 48 out of 50. Well, he's a graduate of Harvard, so no wonder, I guess. Um, so a lot of people would argue that maybe it has not been a very good predictor. And, and the NFL, it certainly hasn't predicted draft order in the NFL. However, um, I just read something the Business Insider over the last like decade they revisited this wonder lick test and see it wasn't accurate portrayal of future NFL success. What they found out that it really didn't have much correlation with like you know your draft order like you know your draft pick so to speak but they did find out a a fairly moderate correlation that it the Wunderlich test did a decent job predicting like long-term success. So um, NFL players that would have like a higher one on those may be more likely to have more long-term success, five, six, seven years in the league, so to speak. Um, interesting enough, the, the New England Patriots, you know, um, who've had a, their own dynasty, obviously, um, they like when their rec- their future players take this test, and not just quarterbacks, but other skill positions. So the Patriots kind of invested kind of heavily in this wonder test as a measure of cognitive kind of skills, you um, so I would say I think that's a kind of interesting. I hear the wonderlic. So once upon a time, yeah, this is going to be the way to pick your quarterbacks. It fallen out of favor for a while, um, and now it seems to be kind of uh, in the middle ground. You know, maybe it doesn't do a great job predicting your draft picks now, but it has a moderately, you know, moderately success, good predictor. I would say of long-term success. I think I heard some kind of scout saying, look, it's not a make or break test, but if you've got two athletes who are, has similar physical qualities, and they're relatively the same, but one scores better on the Wonderlick test, let the Wonderlick test be like the tiebreaker if you're going to choose to draft this person or this person. So um, I read about that Wonderlick testing thing, and I thought that might be a cool thing to present to this uh, podcast.
0: Great, and do you have any other last remarks or comments that you want to share?
1: Um, I just think this is great that um you got you know, you know a podcast for this. I never did a podcast before. I was kind of excited to do this, and I'm just real excited to bring the knowledge of psychology to all audiences, especially young audiences. And I think um, there's a lot of applications for psychology. You know, so if you're not just simply Interested in psychology because you want to be a therapist or you don't want to help out someone with schizophrenia, but you can see there's a quite the obvious application here in, in sports. Um, and it's kind of cool, Brandon, you're making the connection between the two here. So thank you for inviting me for this to talk about um, some of my favorite subjects, you know, sports and psychology.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you for being here. It was great speaking to you. And I appreciate your super knowledgeable outlook on neuroscience, our brain and sports psych. Um, I guess that's it, right?
1: Yep, that sounds good.
0: Thank you for being here, everybody, and goodbye.